out of Oklahoma City. You're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family and is sponsored in part by SadMenForLonelyWomen.com. Sad Men for Lonely Women, because at some point or another, somebody stopped loving you. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the flagship program of the Good Trash Media Network, the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we discuss the films that you will never discuss in a film studies course, except for this month, because this month is our month of anti-trash, uh, a salute to the Oscars and the award season, and so we are definitely looking at films that could definitely find their way on a film studies syllabus. This week's film is Brazil. Uh, it is the story of one Paulo, as he lives and works in Rio de Janeiro and tries to find life and love and happiness in the midst of those slums. Or maybe not. Uh, I so, thought you were going to say a per- perhaps hair removal gone wrong. but I, I thought about um, the, <laughs> the, the titular waxing, but I decided not to go with that because, yeah, wow. Um, enough said. I don't want to talk about it anymore. But uh, that, <laughs> we are so glad uh, to be here talking with you all about Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Uh, let's identify the disembodied voices speaking to your brains. I go to my left, ma'am. Who are you? My name's Alexander Bohannon, and information retrieval's got him down as inoperative. There's another one. Security's got him down as excised, and administration's got him down as completed. I think he's dead, Jim. Yeah. That's what I think. Okay, thank you very much. Sir, to the left, who are you? My name's Caleb Masters, and uh, sorry, guys, I'm a bit of a stickler for paperwork. Where would we be if we didn't follow the correct procedures? Absolutely, absolutely. To my right, sir, please identify yourself. My name is Dalton Stewart, and mistakes, we don't make mistakes. That is completely untrue, but uh, thank you anyway for that. Across the table, sir, who are you? I am Arthur Gordon, and there's been a little bit of a complication with my complication. (laughs) That's accurate. Thank you very much for that. Uh, My name is Dustin Sells, and Dalton, stop calling me mother. And uh, we are so (laughs) glad to be here with you all talking about Brazil. This movie's nuts, and uh, we're going to be very, very uh, excited and animated, I got a feeling, uh, about all of that. But we need to now move in and to the uh, warning section of this show, in which I tell you that this will be an analysis show, not a review show. And that means there will be spoilerific spoiler ridges. And uh, that's going to happen, but it won't happen until after our... Voice the cinema synopsis and our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. You have been warned. A bureaucrat in a retro future world tries to correct an administrative error and himself becomes an enemy of the state. Just goes to show that all the paperwork is evil. And uh, we're going to be talking about this. I'm so excited. It's going to be so much fun. But let's give our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews to our experience in watching the film and just what we appreciate about it and maybe something we don't if we don't appreciate it. I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you got to say? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Yeah, I like it. I think it's very beautiful. as, As Arthur mentioned, it does have this really... Fantastic uh, retro future aesthetic. 
Um, Gilliam's having a lot of fun here with his production design. Uh, does a lot of interesting things with his camera. Uh, there are a couple of uh, shots in particular that just really blew me away. Um, I, I got to say, though, it, it's kind of a mess, but I find that endearing. It's a beautiful mess, if that makes any, any kind of sense. Uh, the world uh, that is being depicted within the text of the film is messy, so honestly, it kind of makes sense uh, that the film is a mess. But uh, as far as tonally... I, I'm not. I'm not talking about narrative structure here because this is this is a film that isn't a tightly plotted film, and that's perfectly fine. I don't. I don't. That I don't hold that against the film. I'm specifically talking about, you know, when characters come in and out of the film um, is just kind of poorly thought out. It feels like uh, tonally there's some confusion going on. I find it to be a very funny film. Um, the shifts in tone uh, are often a little too abrupt. Um, Again, thinking about a couple of particular moments um, that I don't want to get into since we're trying to we're going to stay spoiler free in our review sections. Um, overall, though, I, I really like it. I'm, I've been meaning to get around to watching Brazil for the better part of ten years now, so I'm very glad that I did so. I'm glad I didn't get around to watching it until now because if I had seen this uh, when I was you know fifteen, sixteen, when I first heard that I should check it out, it probably wouldn't uh, have enjoyed it that much. I don't think. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Caleb Masters, what say you in thumbs up, thumbs down review? Well, Dalton stole the words right out of my mouth uh, in, re- in relation to the, the blind spot. I have been meaning to watch this for a really long time, um, at least six to seven years, minimally. And I am glad I, I waited until we did it on this show to do it, because this is a movie that I very easily could have been distracted from and not given the attention it deserves, because I think this movie is a borderline masterpiece, and I think it does deserve my full attention. Um I don't, Dalton, honestly, I don't, I don't really know what you're talking about. I, I, I don't get the tonal inconsistencies. I think it's beautiful. I think it's, well, I can, I do, especially towards the, in the last third of the film, you get a little whiff of that studio intervention. But I thought this, the narrative structure was excellent, especially in the first act. Like it really set the, the ground for what this film is going to be about. I mean, it takes about an hour, but by the time you get there, like, I felt like all the pieces have been put in place so that we could get the, the second and the third act. Uh, now, w- what I really like about this film is it's, a, in, in a lot of ways, it's a prophecy of a future that in many ways has come to pass and is still coming to pass and still could come to pass. And that's what I love about it. Although a lot of the things that the movie talks about have come true, it's still very relevant. And that's what I really like about it. And, and there's, you know, there's still... A lot of areas, uh, a lot of commentary on areas of this film that we haven't reached yet. But I think, you know, looking at the society, the structure we have in place, society and uh, Western uh, and Western civilization, we could definitely get there. And I think the movie uh, works as a bit of a prophecy. and I love it. Uh, I think uh, this is the most Gilliam of all of Gilliam's movies. His uh, obsession with symmetric architecture, long hallways, uh, lenses, particularly that, you know, I'm, I'm sure... Some of the filmmakers who are out there listening that can correct me or give me a name, but like that kind of fishbowl lens, you know, everything looks rounded. A fisheye, yeah. Is a fisheye. Uh, he uses the fisheye because he uses that in a lot of his movies. Uh, but in here, I thought it was the greatest effect. And I also thought the performances here were, were excellent. Jonathan Price, we all had the reaction when we were watching. We we're like, wait, is that that Jonathan Price, the guy who always plays like really small character roles that we all kind of like? Uh, yeah, it's great. And he was a lead role and he was fantastic. We had Ian Holm, Bob Hoskins, all across the board. I thought the acting was a really great. Uh, British ensemble, and you know, I I think that this movie captures uh, kind of the fear of of uh, ambitious dreamer types and puts it into a film and their fears of an oppressive bureaucracy that the real world can be and is a lot of times, and it, it and it articulates in a film and and what I would consider that it, it, it 
it most accurately captures encapsulates that fear in the in the form of a story, uh, and that's what I really really like about it. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you in thumbs up, thumbs down review? Well, if you look up the words uh, "underachiever" and "shortcoming" in the dictionary, you're probably going to find a picture of Terry Gilliam there. Um, Brazil is an Whoa. unrealized boom, masterpiece. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, it had the potential to be one of the greatest movies ever made, but Billiam, Gilliam couldn't quite get the job done. Ooh. It is a collection of really funny sketches, brilliant imagery, and quirky moments mapped together by a weak, boring narrative that drags on and on. Oh, damn! There are moments of this film that I really enjoy and love. I do. I, I mean, there are moments I'm laughing, and I, I love the imagery, and I think it's brilliant. Um I would say I even love some of the moments in here, but in the grand scheme of things, they mean nothing. It is overlong, confused, and it falls short of the hype that it gets. It is mostly uh, forgettable. Uh, the Making of Brazil is a more interesting story than Brazil itself, but it became a cinematic martyr, uh, which raised its stock. The fight to get the film released is more important than the film itself, and at the end of the day, that fight meant nothing, uh, because outside of 12 Monkeys, Gilliam can't get what he wants done. He has a great imagination and ideas, uh, but he should really let somebody else get those ideas on the screen and to the viewer. Ouch. Wow. What a scathing Boom! review. Uh, did we watch the uh, same movie? Hashtag shots fired right. from Arthur Gordon over there. I watched it twice, and both times I didn't like it. Hot damn. Can wow. I buy your Criterion release yeah. DVD then? Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, ra- I'll raise her $5, whatever she's offering. <laughs> Arthur, I'll... I'll stand with you. I, I don't feel as negatively about it as you do, but uh, I'll, I'll definitely side with you because I, I think I know where the rest of the table's at with this one. Wow, that really is something. Well, let's move on to Miss Alexander Bohan and what have you to say, perhaps correctly, in thumbs up, thumbs down review. Well, uh, wow. How do I how do I follow Arthur saying this is shit by saying this is a masterpiece because <laughs> I think it is. Um, I don't. I, I don't. I don't think I would go. I don't think Arthur said it was shit. I just think uh, no. I mean, he's he, bothered by. I think the same things that I'm bothered by, they just really, really uh, no, and that's fair. Hit it's him a, harder. That's a that's a that can be because not all the joy and 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 fun elements about discussing film is that for some people things that uh, make it a film miss the mark are selling points. Sometimes they're like only minor elements, and sometimes they're just huge detractable things, and, and that's just. I think that goes also to taste if you guys have like the same quibbles. Um, But I think that this film is a masterpiece and I'm not going to say that there's because I can't acknowledge that it can be a little sloppy at times, but I do think the overall message, I think it says a lot. I I think it has a lot to say. Um, I also, I'm also coming from the point of view of not seeing a lot of Gilliam before outside of like Python um, and also from the point of view of not knowing the film's cin- cinematic history. So I, I would also maybe challenge Arthur a little bit and say perhaps knowing the extent of all these things coming into the film might be coloring a little bit the experience you have. That that may be may or may not be true. Um, that's, that's just one uh, perspective I do have on that. This movie pushes all my buttons. It's dystopian. It's a critique of societal structures. It's so British. And it's a keen display of government structures and inner workings. Uh, one of my favorite things to do, don't judge me as I'm a huge dweeb for government policy structures, is have a large display of how a government system works. And I do believe that this system operates and works in the way that it does. Unlike 
um, you know, the Ministry of Magic and Harry Potter, for example, because if you think too hard about it, it kind of falls to pieces. But uh, but this one, if you think hard about it, I think that it kind of still stands on its own. Um, I don't know if this is because I'm likely to become a faceless bureaucrat like our protagonist. I mean, that is if you don't go over to patreon.com forward slash GTGC to help, you know, save my soul from uh, bureaucracy from the rest of my life. Um, No, I'm only half kidding about the bureaucrat thing. I think this movie has a lot to say. I think it is an appropriate vehicle for saying what it does. And I think it expertly uses the tone and kind of the whimsical satirical nature to fully convey uh, Gilliam's thoughts, whether this be formally facilitated by lots of studio intervention because of the numerous versions of this. We have to say I'm critiquing it only on the sole basis of the one film that I saw. There you go. Thank you very much for that, Miss Alexander Bohannon. I also think the movie is great. I do think it's a masterpiece. I think it's it's very, very well done. I, I think it's uh, Monty Python and George Orwell's 1984, and uh, it's uh, that's that's a flavor that I'm all about. And so it's it's my favorite Gilliam film. Uh, I really like it a lot, and I like Twelve Monkeys um, just fine, but it's, it's by far my favorite of what I've seen. I've not seen everything, everything either, but... Um, I really, really enjoy it thoroughly. I think it's, uh, I think I love the aesthetic of it. We talked about the near future, uh, retro future aesthetic, but I also like how it's sort of noirish in some ways. You know, uh, men in coats and hats, I like that. And uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's a load of fun. I laugh out loud every time I watch it. I think the, the, the performance, the performances rather are inspired. It's, it's a good time um, as far as I'm concerned. And I, I thoroughly, thoroughly dig it. Um, so there you go, dear listener. Now you know our biases. Um, it is a split table, and so that's always fun. Uh, for all of that, let's move on though and get a word from our sponsors. Hi. Thanks for listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast. This week, we want to take a moment to give a special mention to Keithan Smith, who is our newest contributor on Patreon. Hey, Keithan, thanks. For more information on becoming a patron, go to goodtrashmedia.com and select Become a Patron. That's right, dear listener, and that business in question is analysis. I am so stoked to hear the words that will be said by my co-hosts about this film. I go to you first, Mr. Caleb Masters. What have you to say? Uh, well, I think this movie is a thrashing critique of modernism and consumerism. Uh, I, you know, this film obviously is hearkening t- uh, to uh, works like 1984 or Blade Runner or Brave New World, lots of the dystopian things. But I think what this one does that you don't see in those so much is the focus on how people spend their money, uh, c- the consumerist culture. Because um, there is a, an added layer of complexity whenever you bring in the kind of uh, hyper-capitalistic consumer culture into a very controlled already very you know totalitarian controlled system and i think that brings a really interesting flavor to the movie uh now what i think the movie is kind of getting at with this film is it's trying to dis- it's trying to separate uh the uh the dream from uh the the american dream or the i guess in this western civilization dream of of success in a capitalist system um versus reality of uh the modernism at work uh so clearly uh, sam is sort of 
the character that the the avatar we're, we're riding through with. This is he is a dreamer. He he is he is inspired to go out. He wants to find uh, this woman and he wants to fly, uh, which of course I you know I think is you know meant to be you know just some sort of uh, analogy for just the idea of having a dream to pursue. Uh, as opposed to actually flying, um, but he 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 aspires to do more with his life, but he doesn't uh, really care much for the modernist kind of system in which he has to do so. And this is hinted at early in the film. Whenever he's asked about the promotion, he's like, "Eh, I don't really want the promotion." Yeah, I mean, he never says he doesn't, but he just when asked about it, he just doesn't really seem that ambitious to take uh, to take and rise in the ranks of the system because that's not what he wants. I mean, yes, it's more successful, but it's not really his dream, right? Um, so it's not until he believes that the only way he can acquire his dream is to is to be promoted so that he can have more uh, have new more influence and. In, in, uh, status so that he can get what he wants. In this case, he wants to find Jill because uh, he saw her and she's now wanted. He believes that he can use this, uh, use his you know kind of status to get that information so he can track her down and try to help her. Although he doesn't, he's not really sure what he's going to do about her. Though uh, now, one of the things, uh, key quotes in the movie that that I found was really unnerving to me was bad sportsmanship. A ruthless minority of people seem to have forgotten good old fashioned virtues. They just can't stand seeing the other fellow win. If these people would just learn how to play the game, which was from Mr. Helpman. And Mr. Helpman, being a very successful figure in Brazil, uh, has played the game, obviously, and he has high status working within the system. Uh, now, I think it's really key to understanding the uh, ambivalence this film has towards bureaucratic consumer culture uh, because the only way to achieve success in a modernist society, is to play the game. It's not about your dreams. It's not about success. It's about getting stuff. And the only way to get stuff is to make more money. And the only way to make more money is to work your way up in that culture. And it's through that that the means of money and the means of stuff that you're supposed to find what you want. Uh, now, everyone who does not achieve success by playing the quote-unquote playing the game is a loser. Sam's a loser. Even though the material success isn't really what he wants. And unfortunately, the people who have climbed to the top are also the people who write the rules. Uh, They're the ones who lay the laws down. They're the ones who decide how much you're going to pay to be executed or tortured. Uh, You have all these people in the world. And, uh, you know, I I think this movie is is really kind of holding this consumerist idea of success up and saying it's not real. The, The happiness Sam wants is not found in stuff or a job. It's in achieving his dreams. And when he actually attempts to pursue his dreams um, through the modernist system, uh, he finds out the girl doesn't like him. Uh, he doesn't get, uh, like when he gets the job, he doesn't like it. Um, and then he eventually gets arrested for continuing to pursue his dream because he doesn't fit in the boxes. He doesn't, he's not, again, modernist world, we are all machines ticking, tick, tick, ticking away. And Sam is not a machine tick, tick, ticking away. He has dreams he wants to uh, achieve. And what is what is the modernist society do to people who don't tick, 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 who don't punch the clock on time, who don't do what the machine tells them to do? Well, it gets rid of them, um, and it uh, quite frankly shits them out. So uh, the film uh, now the, the film concludes uh, in a you know, in a real downer because Sam pretty much loses his soul. I mean, he loses his soul. He's I mean, he might as well be dead by the end of the film for pursuing his dreams. And what this movie doubles as, it's a, it's a criticism for, uh, for, for a society that we live in that does this. 
bureaucracy is rampant right now. I mean, look at, uh, without getting too political, though, I mean, no one's exactly happy with Congress right now. Nothing gets done. Uh, we just create more laws and, and paperwork and, and trails and everything, more control. But in reality, it's not actually making any progress. And the film is definitely criticizing that constantly. I mean, the very first or second scene of the movie, whenever she's trying to turn in a warrant, she has to have the warrant, she has to have the, the warrant stamped, and then she has to have it turned in before they can even actually put, put that in, you know. It's a thoroughly punitive sort of society because the, the real goal is not to get anything done or get anything done right as much as it is not to mess up. No, it's to keep the machine going. Yeah. It's to keep the machine going. But if you don't fit, if you don't fit into the machine, uh, you are going to lose as uh, Mr. Helpman would say. And, uh, I, I, but I also, so I think this movie is a criticism of that, but it's also a cautionary tale. If you're a person like Sam who wants to chase your dreams, you better, better as hell learn how to, how, to, how to play the system. Because if you don't, you are going to end up having the soul sucked out of you. So, uh, that's about all I got. Absolutely, and that's about what happens. So very, very well done and well said, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what analysis do you bring? Well, Caleb's uh, ending thoughts dovetail uh, pretty nicely with what I, I was thinking about. Um, this is one of those things where I I fully believe that this was not the director's intent, uh, but sometimes when you're trying to make a statement, you end up saying other things instead uh, or on accident. Um, by the end of this film, Sam Lowry um, is a is literally a comatose uh, husk of a man um, who's uh, in a vegetative state. All of this happened because Homeboy dreamed about flying around like Icarus, saving dames. Um, the world does not want you to be happy. It is thoroughly uninterested in your joy and thoroughly uninterested in your hopes. Um, and what I think Gilliam says by accident is, don't bother. Um, it goes both. It goes. It's a two way street because yeah. he's criticizing the machine, but he's also saying, "But hey, look, this is what happens if you do this." Exactly. It goes both. It's a two way street. It's it's very interesting, and I think it speaks uh, to something I know Arthur wants to discuss, which is the production history of this film, but really the production history of most of Gilliam's films, which is a man in a system that is flawed uh, and damaged, and insists on trying to do things his way and is continually beaten down and told, no, that's not how we do things here. You're going to do it our way or you're not going to do it at all. Sam lives in a world that has neither the time nor the patience nor the inclination uh, to indulge you in your whimsy. Um, And frankly, our world doesn't either. Um, Now, there's something to be said for that. Um, Being uh, something of a pragmatist, I have neither the time nor the patience for your whimsy either. But I I don't think that means we should be people's whimsy out of them either. Um, You know, that's for you. Uh, Keep it to yourself and shut the fuck up. Uh, We've got stuff to do. That's cold. The world's a cold place, Caleb. Oh, I know. That's and what's that's, wrong with it. I, it, it. It's a very interesting thing, because I agree that is what's wrong with it, um, to, to, to a certain extent. And I don't feel like just because it doesn't work doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I think what Gilliam accidentally says here is, why even bother? Uh, this system is so broken and without hope. Um that your your dreams mean nothing. Uh, the only thing that has any chance of maybe even um, flushing the system out um, is violence, uh, I think Gilliam is saying, which, again, is an assertion that I have mixed emotions and mixed feelings about. Um, but, but I think that's the only way, the only way we see people affecting change in this world is through action. Uh, and, it, and by action, I mean violent action. Um, which again, I'm not 
I don't think Gilliam's trying to endorse that, but I think he is saying that we have reached a point of critical mass in the world of Brazil um, where the bureaucracy is so overreaching and so oppressive that there is no real way to be heard unless you're doing something that is actively damaging the system. Like bombing stuff. Like bombing stuff, because otherwise it's not going to listen to you. And I think what Sam Lowry's mistake is... Um, letting the current just rush him along. He, and that's part of my problem with the film, too, is Sam isn't really an actor of any sort. He just kind of goes with the flow. Um, he's like what most dreamers are, though. People, yeah. he's, he's, too, he's too naive. He's ambitious, but he's very naive and doesn't understand. Well, he has no he, he has no ambition, and his lack of ambition allows him to be pulled along by the system. Um even in his pursuit of love, he has no ambition. He just gets in the car. Now, the, the, one of the biggest acts of um, initiative that he shows is getting in Jill's truck, um, but with no real plan, just assuming she'll trust him uh, and drive the truck forward. And again, I, I think this, some of this ties into what are, are my problems with the film uh, in that Sam's an inefficient protagonist, which doesn't always mean that uh, a work of fiction or a film um, is bad, that the, the, the protagonist doesn't make any choices for themselves. I mean, I think there are plenty of interesting protagonists that are pulled by the story as opposed to moving the story. Uh, a lot of people like to use that as an inherent criticism. Uh, when a protagonist doesn't move the story, they're a weak protagonist. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but it is the case for Sam. Um, and within the context of the film Brazil, I think it is a problem. Because, again, Sam is um, inclined to flights of fancy that... Uh, I mean, frankly, um, the best ending that he can hope for is so so fully succumbing to his whimsy um, that he's in a catatonic state, and that's the best he can hope for. Um, and unfortunately, we live in a world that's not all that dissimilar to Brazil, despite our insistence otherwise. Um, and I, again, I think Caleb's point at the end of his uh, analysis probably puts the best pin in it. If you are going to be a person who is inclined to whimsy and flights of fantasy, then you better be fucking ready for the mountain of garbage the world is going to drop on you. And I'm, man, I hate to uh, endorse things that I don't entirely agree with, but yeah, sometimes you got to play the game if you want to win. Um, and that's a real unfortunate thing. Um, but again, the, the world doesn't give a shit about you, so you've got to be willing to work with it to fight it and subvert it. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what analysis do you bring, sir? Despite what I said, I'm not going to try and discredit Terry Gilliam as an auteur in the frame that Brazil is his masterwork, because I believe it is. Uh, when we've talked about auteurism in the past, though, we've mentioned that there are three elements that must be present for a filmmaker to be considered uh, an auteur, and I'm not talking about auteur commerce or uh, commercial auteur, that stuff. I mean, just a traditional auteur in that sense of the Caillou cinema and putting that together. Um, first, they have to be a capable storyteller. And they also have to have an eye for cinema, which allows them to capture the visual elements that uh, make movies so important. And finally, there has to be an underlying thread which, which connects their work and oftentimes makes the work uh, somewhat autobiographical and thus makes the film a bit meta in its subtext. When you think about guys like Hitchcock or Tarantino, oftentimes their films have this movies about movies subtext going on. Uh, rear window, Jimmy Stewart character sits in a chair and essentially watches movies all day uh, with the window making up the screen and the lives of the other residents in the complex making up the different stories. Uh, there are romances, comedies, but most importantly, there is a mystery taking place because this is a Hitchcock film. Uh, then in the latter part of the film, Stewart becomes the avatar for Hitch himself, directing Grace Kelly's role within the aforementioned mystery film that is playing out, uh, calling the shots from his director's chair off screen. 
Tarantino falls here as well. His postmodern filmmaking takes cinema to task for its uh, violence and dialogue, with each of his films having something to say about those topics. Uh, Brazil matches all of those criteria. Gilliam's uh, masterpiece certainly uh, fulfills those requirements. And, and it is the second in a spiritual trilogy uh, where each film tackles the theme of oppression. Time Bandits tackles youth and oppression, while Baron Munchausen tackles old age and oppression. Uh, Brazil falls in the middle and speaks to many of the pitfalls of middle age and being unmotivated and complacent in life. And I think Dalton and Caleb have both done a good job of uh, bringing out and fleshing out those themes that are at work there as far as bureaucracy and the man versus the machine. Jonathan Price's Sam Lowry is the stand and I believe, for Gilliam uh, in many ways. Gilliam has always gone to battle with the studios over his films, uh, sometimes maybe not so much early in his career, but later on, definitely, especially starting with Brazil, uh, which was a very public battle, which was um, he and De Niro would go on talk shows and try to uh, get his cut released and try to get that done. He took out full-page ads directed towards the studio head uh, trying to get his cut made, and he... Uh, was able to screen parts at UCLA, but he wasn't supposed to screen the whole thing, but he did. And that's really kind of what pushed it over the edge and got that released. Gilliam has always gone to battle though with his studio over his films. A good many of them are noted for the behind the scene battles that Gilliam had to go through. And in many ways, Hollywood acts as a bureaucracy with the studio heads often having the final creative say in these films. Uh, even though the directors, writers and actors like elected officials are often the audience's champion uh, as the true artists of Hollywood. It is so poetic that Brazil had the battle that it had as Gilliam went head to head with studio head Sid Scheinberg, uh, who was going to distribute Brazil in America. Uh, Brazil had already received distribution in Europe. And so that cut that was shown in Europe was the was the cut that we saw, the final cut, whatever you want to call it. Now, Scheinberg didn't think that audiences would want to would want the product that Gilliam was offering. And so he was going to release this 90-ish minute cut, uh, which did eventually see TV syndication. It's also known as the Love Conquers All cut, and it is available from Criterion on the three-disc set of Brazil, uh, if you're ever wanting to see that. Um, but it cut out a lot of the story, and it also gives the film that Hollywood happy ending, and that's really what uh, Scheinberg was going for instead of this bleak, hopeless, uh, accurate, probably, uh, <laughs> ending that Gilliam gave us. Um but Gilliam decided to buck the system in a very public battle, like I mentioned. Uh, he eventually got the film shown uh, the way he imagined. Where Lowry and Gilliam differ, though, are in their personal motivations. Lowry is completely happy in his role at the Ministry of Information. He has no ambition, as we've mentioned, or drive until he discovers Jill, who kind of opens up his world. Uh, he is the yin to Gilliam's yang. Gilliam is very motivated with a great imagination, uh, a stubborn man who fought to get his baby released uncut the way he thought it was meant to be seen. Ironically... The ending of the film is probably just as much a commentary on the way Gilliam's career would pan out as it is a poetic ending for Sam Lowry. Uh, the bureaucracy wins in the long run. Sam got a few good hits in, but at the end of the day, the machine beats the man. Gilliam's career hasn't played much differently. Outside of Holy Grail and Twelve Monkeys, Gilliam's filmography doesn't have much impact. Most of them are either commercial flops, such as the Brothers Grimm, or they're a victim of bad timing or studio intervention, or both, such as the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Or the content just isn't as accessible to a large movie-going audience, such as Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Many of Gilliam's films have found a place in cult circles, thanks greatly to groups like Criterion, who have made an effort to preserve works like Gilliam's. A very important effort, I, I would argue. Uh, but at the end of the day, when it comes to the bureaucratic state of the studios, Gilliam can't win. He can't break through. And he probably never will. Wow. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I love some good industrial analysis, so that's good times uh, for us all. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what analysis do you have? 
Well, I'm going to actually look at the kind of the stylistic and visual imagery in this film because I feel like what it has to say is really, really important and it kind of keys into um, a larger literary body of um, dystopian future novels. Um, for So for... So obviously, this film takes a lot of inspiration from uh, George Orwell's 1984. It also takes inspiration from Aldous Huxley's uh, A Brave New World. And I also feel like it takes inspiration from uh, Dr. Seuss. Yeah, no, totally yeah, fair. I mean, I mean, look, I just really appreciate the, the visual imagery of all those machines as conveyed by Seuss. Um, and I feel like they're echoed a lot in, in Gilliam. And I think that's just Gilliam's general aesthetic as well. But overall, I'm going to talk more about 1984 in a brave new world because I remember in my senior AP uh, literature class that we had to re- read these obviously as kind of like our literary double feature. And, um, it is an interesting juxtaposition of contrasting ideas because you have 1984 on the one hand, where is totally dictatorial totalitarianism, and it is totally, you know, under the, the ever-present eye of Big Brother. Then you have A Brave New World, which is still over, over totalitarian, but it is masked through, you know, total hedonism. And I feel like this film ends up in a place where it's like the perfect synthesis of both of those two ideas. Because let's face it, in terms of conveying conveying it realistically... I get what you're, you're getting at, Alex, because for a bureaucracy to be as large as it would have to be to completely uh, control its populace uh, the way we see in 1984, um, it's going to be completely bass-ackwards and... Um, frankly, a little inefficient because that's how bureaucracy works. Uh, I I think that's something maybe Gilliam gets right that uh, Orwell didn't, is uh, that the big brother of Brazil is kind of clunky. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because what I remember in that course, uh, we discussed at length because Huxley wrote Brave New World first and then... uh, Yeah, like 20-something. Yeah. And then Orwell then wrote his kind of response, which was 1984. And I feel like both of them, they still don't quite hit the mark on what the the total perils of dystopian future because i feel like um i feel like 1984 totally discounts the whole ideas of pleasure being this distracting element that people the populace can be controlled through their pleasures and through you know this kind of capitalistic overtone and then i feel like a brave new world while they do do that conditioning uh piece at the very beginning of the novel which always just rips my heart out they never really truly get into how much the government can be present in your life and get into you. Well, they get into you in that way, but they, but they're not like breathing down your neck, you know, checking your every move, making sure all your eyes are dotted and your T's are crossed. But I feel like the intersection of both of those into Brazil is, is the perfect answer for what this world could realistically look like. Mm -hmm. Um, That fully conveys the, the despotism and, the absolute terror of such a pervasive government. But then you have this really great uh, capitalistic, hedonistic perspective, which you guys talked about, which I think is totally necessary for it to not be completely unrealistic. Because one one issue that can be present in literature is that we can totally discount a world just because it's like, oh, well, that's too unlike what I experience, or this is too unlike 
um, my day to day. So it's, it's unrealistic. It couldn't happen. But I feel like for a world to completely convey that this is something that happens and does happen and will happen, you know, if we don't have a good eye on things, it, it has to be somewhat believable. And it's kind of interesting considering the whimsy as added by, you know, these really, this really fantastic kind of retro future, uh, imagery that, and it just totally makes this future work. And I, and I think that as we've discussed before, this is definitely a cautionary tale. And I think it's made more powerful by the fact that it, it takes a tempered view on these two kind of competing ideologies. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much for that, Miss Alexander Bohannon. It actually ties in very nicely to the things I'm going to say now because I want to talk about ideology. And I want to particularly bring in critical theory, which is, again, sort of uh, that uh, critical theory school from uh, Theodore Adorno and all those cats, uh, specifically one fellow named Walter Benjamin. That's with a J and you the J is silent, hillbilly. And uh, that's just is what it is. And, and, I mean, you know, some of the uh, cynicism that Dalton has addressed and, again, sort of this uh, uh, anti-authoritarianism that Alex has addressed, uh, all this stuff going on in the film. And you, when you do critical analysis, when you do sort of theoretical inter- interjections into a film, uh, it, it's, it's important to make sure that you're finding sort of the right voices and the right bits of conversation to sort of uh, bring that all together. And uh, I recently just read an article. This is a, this is something of a tangent um, from uh, the University of Nottingham uh, about uh, Heideggerian uh, films. You know, listing Melancholia, Ikiru, and uh, a few others. And uh, this film really is uh, Benjaminian. And I'm I'm relying heavily on a recent Jacobin article uh, by M- Michael uh, Lowry, and uh, he talks about uh, Benjamin his. Anarchism is Marxism and surrealism and how those things all sort of interface. And it seems like to me the film is absolutely an interface of those things. Uh, it's anarchic insofar as it is all about upsetting all of the apple carts. It is, um, this is sort of the, the bit of Python that he's bringing along with him. Uh, that all of Python's uh, films, uh, Life of Brian especially and uh, The Holy Grail, are really sort of about – not necessarily saying something specific about solutions as much as uh, pointing out that the emperor has on no clothes and uh, that there's sort of a vacuousness and there's an emptiness and there is a uh, dehumanization that that occurs in all of that. But also uh, there is uh, in this film, I think, uh, this element of Marxism, uh, which the surrealists also eventually embrace to an extent, where it's the entirety of uh, human history is about class oppression and class struggle. And that the as the arrow moves forward, what you can expect in that progress is more and more oppression in different forms of oppression, which I think gives you know, some weight to that sort of cynical ending uh, to the film. Finally, uh, you have the Surrealists, who um, Benjamin um, really champions as uh, the only, um, you know, uh, literati of the time who had a radical notion of freedom that they had actually put together and put forward, that do what you want to do, uh, sort of give in to desire. Uh, the Freudian elements of the film, insofar as uh, you know, Jill is obviously Sam's dream girl, uh, there's a bit of an Oedipal moment there at the end of the film where he's being somewhat thwarted in that. And uh, the, the, the film seems to be, like Benjamin, to be primarily anarchist, 
uh, with a dash of sort of this understanding of class struggle, with a very much surrealist aesthetic, uh, which seems to me, if uh, Walter Benjamin were still alive, which there'd be no chance of anyway, uh, but if, if he were, this would be the sort of film that he would endorse. This is the sort of film that he would uh, find uh, many, many handles with his particular version of philosophy. And uh, to the point of, you know, its effectiveness and whatnot, uh, I, I look forward to the uh, Panique movement in the uh, 60s in France, uh, sort of the, the uh, inheritors of the surrealist uh, tradition. And one of their great uh, slogans was, uh, let's all be reasonable and demand the impossible. And that's that's what this film seems to be. It, it is a moment like we've got to be reasonable, and the reasonable moment is to be anarchistic and to be anti-authoritarian. Uh, the reasonable moment is to recognize and sort of name uh, broken things in uh, income inequality and uh, class systems and those sort of things, and then to uh, embrace again what Benjamin calls this sort of intoxication of freedom and love of life, and uh, this uh, this this courage to dare to dream for things that are impossible and demand that they happen. And to me, the film seems to suggest that it does end badly, but I think the film also suggests that the struggle goes on. And I would go further to say Sam gets free, even though it goes very, very badly for him. Can you imagine the Sam who never, ever went and took care of Mrs. Buttle and never met Jill? Uh, That Sam is worse than a dead man, don't you think? I think the surrealists would think so, but what do you guys think? I think that man is already dead. I think the surrealists had the free time and money to consider such notions. Well, they are a little bougie. So, but I, I do feel like the film does sort of subscribe and illustrate those ideologies quite clearly. So, uh, therefore, as companion reading, I would recommend Walter Benjamin's Illuminations, that collection of essays, as a fine companion to Terry Gilliam's Brazil. And I want to thank my dear co-hosts for their most excellent uh, analysis. And we're going to move on and do a little something-something else and uh, talk about, again... Uh, more of our sponsors. Good Trash Genrecast is brought to you in part by SadMenForLonelyWomen.com. Have you ever found yourself yearning for the glorious moments of your past? I know I have, but we can't offer that to you. But we can give you the next best thing. The Beginner's Guide to Loneliness, a collection of the most shared, viewed, and favorited articles from sadmenforlonelywomen.com. The Beginner's Guide to Loneliness is available over at Amazon.com. Pick up your copy today. And we're back, and we want to do what we do as we conclude our analysis section and review sections of our film of the week and talk about a verdict for this film, the shelf or trash, and the else or instead. We'll see if analysis and conversation has changed any minds whatsoever. I feel like minds don't change very often, so we shall see. I am also as cynical as everyone else, apparently. So I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, shelf or trash, else or instead? I think it's certainly shelfable, just because um, I, I don't like it as much as you or uh, Alex or Caleb doesn't mean I don't think it's an important film. Uh, I don't. Uh, that doesn't mean that I don't think it's not an enjoyable film. I did have a, a great time watching it. I, I think it is very fun. I think it's very interesting. I just think it's got some 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 flaws, but I don't think those flaws. Uh, devalue it by any stretch of the imagination to pair with it um i would recommend um 12 monkeys um which has been brought up several times um the uh, relatively uh 
famous cult 90s film that Gilliam did with Brad Pitt and um, Bruce Willis. That's a, an adaptation of La Jetée, uh, which I also think you should uh, check out in uh, conjunction with this because all of these things speak to Gilliam's kind of retrofuturistic sensibilities when he's doing uh, science fiction. Um, so yeah, check it out. Do that. Watch the shit now. Um, I've got to give this film... Hmm. Seven creepy baby masks out of a possible 12. <laughs> Excellent rating. Thank you very much for that. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what say you? Shelf or trash and else or instead? I think this is super shelf. I think this is elevated shelf. Buy it on Criterion. I plan on doing so next time there's a sale. Um, for my uh, else's to kind of pair with this film, I would go for V for Vendetta. We've done that show on the show. Good pick. And uh, I think that Brazil has a stronger ending than V does because I feel like V's ending is way too hopeful, um, in my humble opinion. But it does have a lot of that uh, dictatorial, totalitarian, dystopian uh nonsense going there, for it there's definitely um some some lifts from brazil and uh, v for vendetta oh yeah um i would also recommend mad max fury road besides the fact <gasps> you should just watch that movie um i have to say i couldn't not think of mad max as jill got in her truck like those those were that, that aesthetic looked way i was like what the furiosa um you know before her time or, you know, maybe maybe the reason why they never go outside is because it's a giant nuclear wasteland, just like Mad Max Fury Road, and it's actually Australia, and, you know, my, uh, my crossover stuff never ends. And then lastly, because I never will have an opportunity to recommend this to you again, one of my favorite television shows from all time, uh, from the 19, uh, 1960s, 1970s, it's a, a British uh, political satire called Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. Those are... That's like my favorite TV of all time. It's a comedy. If you like all that bureaucratic uh, hootie what's it and you want less whimsy, yes, you should watch that show because it's just bloody fantastic. So uh, I would recommend all of those for you. And my final rating is 12 um, artistic air ducts out of possible 12. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much for that, Ms. Alexander Bohannon. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what's that you? Shelf or trash? Else or instead? You don't need to see Brazil. It's oh. trashable. Whoa! I don't care if I lose all credibility. Uh, instead, you go and you watch last week's movie, The Holy Mountain, uh, which heavily influences Gilliam's work and has a stronger message and is overall a better film. Uh, then you follow that up with a mini-marathon featuring Office Space, Minority Report, and The Matrix, all of which tackle many of the ideas and themes presented by Gilliam, but each of those movies is better than Brazil. Oh. I give Brazil 15 hazmat costume volleyball players... Out of 21. <laughs> Arthur, you, my, 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 everything you just said, I don't know how to feel about all of it because it's kind of sort of true but not accurate. I think... The Holy uh, Mountain's better. I give them that. I, my order report's uh, better. I, th- I think uh, the point that you made about some of the films that followed Brazil being exceptionally watchable, I, I think that necessi- necessitates Brazil's being shown. Yes. You know, the, some of the films that Arthur uh, mentioned definitely liked Brazil a lot, the, the filmmakers behind those films. And, I mean, didn't we also discuss last week how you watch these kind of highfalutin esoteric films and then someone watches it and digests it and then someone watches that and digests it. And I think that Brazil kind of acts as, you. I mean, I think you're spot on on those those else's, but I think to, like, fully get those films, you really do need to watch Brazil. But that's, I mean, again, my opinion, I'm biased. I don't know. I don't, I don't. 
I think these other movies do it better than Brazil, and so I don't know that you need to go back to the source. Uh, it's it's kind of like Citizen Kane. You don't need to see Citizen Kane because a lot of other movies have done it so much better. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, okay. yeah. I can't, that, I, I Dustin can't, might I can't agree follow, with you, I, I Arthur, can't follow, on that one. <laughs> I, can't, I, I cannot follow you on no, that. No, I mean, I don't, I don't like to watch Citizen Kane, but you have to see it. I don't know that you do. No, I, I think that you do. This is a conversation for another day. We're going to keep this moving right along. Caleb Masters, shelf or trash, else or instead? Yeah, absolutely, shelf it. I love this movie. I think it's a freaking masterpiece. Uh, else, uh, a couple of you guys took a couple of my else's. I was also going to recommend 12 Monkeys because I think it's a brilliant uh, time travel film that is also warning about the... A different dystopian future uh, that's also very, very different type of dystopian future, but also just as plausible. Um, v for Vendetta was on my list. I also want to throw out, uh, for people who are interested in films about dreamers, uh, two films. One being, more recently, Christopher Nolan's Inception, because that's like the ultimate lucid dreamer movie. And I think it, it actually does hit on a lot of the same film uh, themes that Gilliam is working with here. And I believe no one even cited it as one of... You know, several movies that inspired uh, Inception. I also recommend Wake, Waking Life, uh, directed by uh, Richard Linkletter. It's a, another movie about people dreaming. It's for him. It was a. Uh where he did like the pastel version of reality, like yeah, he, the, did. he did the rotoscoped animation, yes. yeah, with that he would later do again with a uh, scanner darkly, exactly. Uh, and it's a it's a beautiful movie, but also in a in a in a roundabout way discusses the same themes that this movie is dealing with. Uh, but in a more, I mean, in a link letter way, where it's literally just people rambling on about those ideas. And I don't know if you're like me and you'll enter that. And then uh, I'll leave it with a score of 14 Dream Silver Samurais out of a part possible 14 and a half. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. Uh, I like the movie a lot. I am definitely going to say Shelf. Uh, what else you should watch are a couple Kubrick films. You should take a look at Dr. Strangelove and also Clockwork Orange. Uh, there's definitely some influence there that's leading towards this film. And then, just despite Arthur, watch Citizen Kane. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And those are the end of my recommends. I am so glad to be doing this. We need to make a transition, though. At this point, dear listener, we've got more stuff to do. Just stay tuned for more good trash fun. And we're back, dear listener, and we do hope that you're either sambaing in your car or whilst running. Um, it will not disturb the other joggers, we promise. It'll be fine as you hear those bits of bumper music. But now is the time in this show where we talk about listener feedback. Mr. Arthur Gordon, can you tell us about one of those means and bring any feedback to us that might be coming our way? You can uh, connect with a Good Trash Shonercast by going and liking our mother page, much like the mothership. It's the mother page over at Facebook.com forward slash Good Trash Media. You can keep up with everything we're doing uh, from the Good Trash Media Network there uh, and liking our posts and stuff. We've had some love over there with shares and likes and still bringing in some new likes, and so that's really appreciated. Uh, I don't believe we have any written feedback coming in this week, though. And so, uh, you know, we like that. We like those conversations. We have had a lot of reach and people looking at and sharing articles, and so that's that's great. Uh, you could also connect with us on Google+, and you could email us, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Thank you very much for that very, very Wisconsin pronunciation uh, pronunciation of dot com. Pronunciation? Yeah. Pronunciation? It's an, ad- it's, an, it's an adaption of pronunciation. Nothing could possibly go wrong. <laughs> I believe that's the first thing that's ever gone wrong. It's, it's the George, Analyzes. It's the George W. Bush version of... Uh, 
pronunciation. And now rapist. And now rapist. So we got to move on, though, and uh, see if there's any more feedback or any more social media means by which conversations could be held. Dalton, you know anything about that stuff? As a matter of fact, Dustin, yes, you can uh, find the Good Trash Media Network on Twitter at good underscore trash. Um, that's a one-stop shop location for um, feedback to any and all of our shows, uh, be it the Good Trash Genrecast, which you're listening to right this second. Uh, or maybe you're interested in uh, giving us uh, some feedback on Back to the Movies or the cast who knew too much or the film syllabus. So those are just some of the uh, the, the wonderful uh, things you can uh tweet us about uh, over there at good underscore trash um not much in the way of written feedback a similar story this week as to uh facebook although we did get a little nice message from the uh, oklahoma city film club uh, about uh, our quote excellent episode uh, over holy mountain and they uh, thanked us for the shout out we gave them so no hey thank you oklahoma city film club um you're a delight. Patreon contributor Brigham Cole also uh, wrote in uh, this week. Uh, really, I say wrote. He 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 simply typed "Who's ready to uh, uh, to the <laughs> podcast and uh, to the co-hosts" uh, with a picture of his uh, CBS Fox Video Star Wars trilogy, uh, unadulterated. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Don't forget, we have a website, uh, goodtrashmedia.com, and we'd love to see you there. We also uh, really, really appreciate your Stitcher and iTunes reviews slash ratings. The ratings are the most crucial. We'd love for you to write a review as well, and we will read those on the air if uh, we get the opportunity to do so. But we are very, very uh, interested in getting those reviews because they help get more good trash out there. We are trying to pollute the planet with all of our good trash information for you all. Now, we need to move on, though. The time is running out, and it's time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. <laughs> Rest in peace, Lemmy uh, and Motorhead. Uh, we just, uh, again, want to recognize that, and thank you for that great bit of music that you made for us. Hey, this week's game is our favorite futuristic worlds. That's right, favorite futuristic worlds brought to you by Brazil. Brazil, where hearts were entertaining June. Let's talk about our favorite futuristic worlds. The design and production design of this film is gorgeous and fun and interesting and never boring. And therefore, we are going to talk about those sorts of worlds that we just really like the way they're designed and the way they look and the way that they envision possible futures. I ask you first, Mr. Caleb Masters, what say you? I'm an optimist, guys. So you know what? I'm picking Star Trek. Back when the future was actually hopeful, we actually made progress, and we actually decided, hey, we're going to explore and do cool stuff instead of getting bogged down in bureaucracy and nu- nuclear war and all that. It was like, hey, we're going to like succeed as a race, and we're going to go out and discover new planets so that we can help those planets grow into their own cultures, and we're going to take the things we learn from them and make ourselves better, because guess what? Everyone wins in that future. It's great. It's wonderful. I am a huge, massive WALL-E fan, uh, and I think the world that it uh, portrays is wonderful, because it's, again, kind of accurate uh, in a lot of ways. You could, I could, you could all feasibly see that happening, and I think it's very smart in how it portrays uh, people getting, again, caught up so getting so caught up in consumerism that they forget to pay attention to the actual world that's unfolding around them. And then I also want to give a shout out to The Time Machine, the book, the 1960s adaptation. And I actually like the one that came out, uh, I don't know, it was like 2003 or something oh, like that. Oh, God, the one with Guy Pierce. Uh, yeah, the movie... Oh, no, it's bad. Hey, no, no, it is bad. Um, the movie is not great, but I really like the portrayal of the evolution of the future in that uh-huh, film. Okay. There, okay right. I know the movie itself is a, is a mess, but like there, there's that scene where he's like time hopping into the future and the different 
points in the future. It's like, oh, hey, look, they're drilling into the moon because we same problem. We ran out of resources. So, and then you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. We're like leaving Earth, and then you find out he he gets back on the time machine in twenty like what hundred years later. Oh, we drilled too deep and cracked the moon in half, causing the entire apocalypse. And then the Earth recreated itself. It, it's anyway very cool. 30-minute stretch of that film that I, I thought was beautiful, and I wish the whole film could have been that strong. But either way, the different interpretations of H.G. Wells' novel uh, are all really, really interesting and fascinating in their own right because it changes depending on where we, uh, you know, as a as a Western culture are at at the time. Uh, those are my picks, Mr. Dustin Sells. Well, thank you very much for them, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you have any selections as well? Yeah, I, I, I almost went with Star Trek because there's a lot of fun there to be had. Um, I want to mention The Hunger Games, uh, both the book and the movies. I, I just love the idea of how America evolves after whatever happens, the war or whatever, and each district becomes this kind of uh, reverts back to these different, uh, I can't think of words, words are hard. Uh, but you know they each focus and specialize in these different areas, and I, I I just really like that idea. And kind of going along with it, for some reason I think the Fifth Element really inspires the Capitol. Yes, yes. Uh, there's a lot of that same stuff going on there, the Capitol and what's happening in Fifth Element. Uh, but the two I really want to mention are uh, are her and uh, Robot and Frank, uh, which have this kind of it's it's this uh, logical next step progressive uh, futuristic world that we see uh, where not a lot has changed. But uh, design of buildings and uh, technology and video gaming and all that, it just seems like the next logical step. And it's sleek and it fits in with what we know. And it doesn't seem outlandish to get to that point. And I really appreciate those visions of the future. And I like that a lot. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Ms. Alexander Bohannon, what is your selections? Well, um, I'm going to kind of categorize these on visual aesthetic preferences and um, kind of societal preferences. Not necessarily that I prefer dystopian futures, but um, things that I enjoy reading about. Um, visually, I really like Star Wars's visual aesthetic. I, I know it, it seems kind of contrite to say that, but um, I, I like how the one thing that kind of bothers me about this is the future is that like everyone's got to have like these wacky clothes on like the Capitol, like that drives me fucking nuts. That drives me crazy. I mean, while I do like the, um, the theme and tones of star Trek better in terms of like what they like are seeking for. I love star Wars visual aesthetic and like the technology and everything. And everyone's wearing normal ass clothes with normal ass names. Um, in terms of, Things that I enjoy reading about future-wise, there are two young adult series that I would recommend to you. Uh, Scott Westerfeld's Uglies Trilogy, which is a dystopian future in which people are controlled in a kind of hedonistic society because everyone is required uh, to get plastic surgery when they are 16 years old. And uh, then people that don't are considered you know, lesser, lesser citizens, and it's very, very interesting um, and of course, there's you know shenanigans. The government's doing things, and then of course, uh, M. T. Anderson's feed, which is a essentially where people get uh, pre Facebook. Facebook was written in 2001, installed in their brain. Yeah, you uh, uh, mentioned this uh, not that long ago. Yeah, it was um, well because I saw uh, Kirsten Thurgolson had it on her shelf. That's it, right, and I borrowed it from her again. And that is a fantastic and very bleak. Uh, those yeah, those sounds are really interesting. Bleak. Um, but I would recommend both of those in terms of their tonal uh, viewpoints. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. Mr. Dalton Stewart. Well, uh, sorry, Caleb. Um, 
most of the the futures that uh, I thought of are, are kind of bleak and and not so shiny. Uh, that's what we like to write about in the last thirty years. Yeah, so. that's fair. Um, but again, there are also some really beautiful and interesting uh, ideas in, in some of these worlds. Uh, one of them, not from film, uh, the uh, the retro uh, post the retro futuristic post apocalypse of the Fallout series, um, which definitely is very heavily influenced by Brazil uh, with the the series starting in the mid to late nineties. Um, I certainly think there's some influence by Brazil. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I. I sh- it's more interesting than your average uh, post-nuclear wasteland because not only is it a post-nuclear wasteland, but also there's uh, the remnants of this uh, this uh, highly advanced society that stopped uh, progressing culturally in the 1950s, which I think is just really, um, really interesting. Moving on, uh, I also, Arthur, really appreciate those um, futures that feel like natural outgrowths of where we are. Um, Two very recent ones, um, Alex Garland's um, Ex Machina, which he described as taking place five minutes from now. Um, so the tech is just a little bit more advanced than where we are now, um, but nothing about it really is all that shocking. It all seems to make sense and not be that big of a leap forward. Uh, I also was going to mention Her, uh, which is a film that I adore, but also uh, Ryan Johnson's Looper, which is kind of this yeah. uh, this retrofitted future. It's not a retro future. It is pretty advanced uh, in terms of the technology it uh, depicts, but you see uh, modern cars uh, retrofitted with uh, like just covered in solar panels, and then they're all like wired to the gas tank. Uh, just little interesting touches like that. Um, earbuds that have no cords; they're they're Bluetooth earbuds. It looks like just again little touches like that. And then you know, forty years out from then, then there's time travel and stuff. But again, just kind of a a very interesting uh, world that's depicted there. And and, and finally. I would be remiss if I, I didn't uh, mention Alien, which uh, comes up all the time on this show. Um, it not really, it feels like a retro future now, but at the time it wouldn't have. I mean, that's the thing. In nineteen, you know, seventy nine, seventy eight, seventy nine, seventy eight doesn't matter. Uh, that would have felt like a a, a perfectly futuristic future. Uh, but in, you know, twenty sixteen, you look back and um, wow, if the future looked like that would be kind of rolling our eyes a little bit. But I mean the. The the future of Alien and Aliens is so fascinating and just um, clunky and dirty, but also just really interesting and well-designed. Um, so well done. Well done, Ridley Scott and Ryan Johnson, um, Alex Garland, Spike Jones, all of the above. Well done, gentlemen. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I will echo the recommendations of those around the table. I will only add two of my own. One from 2015, uh, Jennifer Fang's Advantageous, which is a great little science fiction film. And there's not a whole lot of the world that you see, but the moments you do see a car or two, you do see uh, different versions of sort of Bluetooth, uh, cell phone technology. Uh, There's some building designs that are just really kind of genius. Uh, Sometimes uh, the CGI is a little wonky because the budget's a little small, but the idea, the vision itself though is really really kind of brilliant uh lastly i just want to name a uh, sky captain in the world of tomorrow uh, uh, i mean just what a vision i mean really really visionary it's sort of diesel punky and i dig that uh, maybe i don't know blimps that's uh, a thing isn't it diesel punk yeah yeah that's a thing well arthur made a face at me you never heard that yeah it's 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 i mean it's like steampunk but you know instead of steam engines it's diesel engines yeah, uh, so uh, just a just a step forward, I guess, uh, version of that. So I really, really like that. I really like the vision of it all, and it's very, very fascinating to me. Thank you for that. We'd love to hear your feedback, dear listener, about that. But we've got to move on and conclude the show, as we always do, with what has got us fired up in pop culture. The roof! The roof! The roof is on fire! We don't need no water left 
That's right. We've got all kinds of fire to bring to the table. I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Are you fired up this week? Uh, a little bit. Um, Caleb sent me a, a link uh, to an um, interview. Uh, I guess not really an interview, just a statement from the uh, head of HBO's uh, original programming, whose name eludes me at the moment. Uh, but basically it was a, a statement of, yeah, sorry, uh, True Detective Season 2 wasn't as good as Season 1. Uh, basically admitting fault for uh, forcing Nick Pizzolatto to get the show out more quickly than he was ready to. Um, again, I, I kind of, I think most viewers put two and two together on that pretty quickly on their own. I think what about is interesting is, is seeing a, a network head admit fault. That never uh, happens. Which, yeah, does not happen very often. And I, I thought that was pretty cool and honestly pretty admirable. In other HBO news, they have uh, announced that uh, Deadwood will finally get a wrap-up with a, um, a HBO original films uh, movie, uh, wrapping up the three-season uh, Deadwood. It's about time. I haven't watched it, but people have been talking yeah. about this for years. I, I like Deadwood okay. It's one of those shows that it took me a long time to get through the first season, and I think that impacted my enjoyment of it. I think I need to go back and give it another shot, though, because I never did finish uh, the, the series. Uh, and that's really all uh, I am fired up about this week. I guess the Golden Globes are happening tonight, but uh, I really don't give a shit about the Hollywood Foreign Press, and I really think it's dumb that Ricky Gervais is hosting again. What? I don't like Ricky Gervais. I think he's an asshole. He is. That's what makes him funny. No. That he is, though. He's he's meaner than he is funny, which, as far as I'm concerned, means he's not particularly funny. I think uh, once upon okay. a time he was very funny, and uh, now I just, I've lost interest in his shtick. But, uh, yeah, the Golden Globes are tonight, so award season is, is in full swing now. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Caleb Masters, are you fired up this week? Yeah, there's a little bit of fire in the oven. Uh, things are heating up for the spring. I, Game of Thrones Season 6 is officially going to start April 24th, 2016. Woo! Yeah. Oh, super exciting. It's a. Uh, it's you know. It's a little little later. They every year they push it a little further back. Every single year. Just you, this this time they pushed it by about three weeks. So eh, a little longer than wait than I wanted to. But I am so excited to get back to Westeros, especially seeing as this new season is going to be total. I mean, last season there was a little bit of the uncharted territory. This season though, we are going full on. We're passing George on on the way out. George tried. He did his best. He tried, and he admitted. Oh, and that's another thing kind of tying in something else I was fired up about. He came out on his blog on New Year's Day, and he's like, yep, guys, I uh, didn't hit my deadline. I'm sorry. Not going to blame anybody but myself. Uh, you know, j- life happens. Um, so, yeah, I'm really, really fired about Game of Thrones. Uh, recently, yesterday, I started watching One Punch Man. I've been recommended this by like eight people, so I'm like, all right. I haven't watched an anime in a really long time, so it's time to check it out. Uh, lots of fun. If you like some satire, like a sat, kind of a satirical take on the, the the genre of anime and like these Dragon Ball Z esque characters, it's tons of fun. I mean, I've only watched the first two, and I I, I was like, about the, my sides were hurting. I was laughing so hard. Um, outside of that, I caught the Revenant, which I believe we're going to talk to uh, about on Back to the Movies uh, here in one of our upcoming episodes. And of course, we have our episode uh, for the big short. Uh, between me, Arthur, and Alex that should be uh, live right now if you're listening. So if you really want to get angry and fired up about you know economics or ba- get angry at banks, I mean, it's a great time to listen. That's right here. Uh, that's about all the fire I've got, Dustin. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Caleb Masters. Ms. Alexander Bohanner, are you fired up equally? Yep. I've got one thing I'm on fire for, and is the fact that I'm going to go see David Cross perform stand-up in April. Oh, hey, awesome. Where? Yeah, um, OKC Comedy is hosting um, him at the OKC Farmer's Market, and they dropped tickets on Friday. They were only $35 a piece. Um, so if you're interested in coming with me, I'd love to see you there. Um, and you can find more about that on OKCComedy.com. 
Awesome. Thank you very much for that, Miss Alexander Bohannon. I am fired up about a uh, series I bought all the discs for and then started watching through and stopped somewhere midway, three quarters of the way through the third season. And I've now powered through the fourth season of Babylon 5 from the 90s. I got to tell you, gang, it's awesome. Uh, the, okay, CGI, bad. Real bad. Everybody knows it's bad. It's super low budget. The actors, eh, they have moments that are not so shiny. But it moves, 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 gang, and is definitely worth your time. We're so glad to hear all this fire coming up around this table. We want all of you guys uh, to let us know what you're fired up about as well through those means of social media. Now, our next film for uh, our anti-trash marathon is going to be a host pick from one Mr. Dalton Stewart. Dalton, we are waiting with bated breath. Bated. What is the film? Well, we are going to continue this month of anti-trash. Um, we we, we uh, started in the 70s, we moved to the 80s, and we're going to finish these last two weeks um, now, essentially, like right now. Uh, so we, uh, for my host pick uh, this uh, month, we are going to be watching the 2014 Swedish film Force Majeure. Going to be an exciting one. We've, we've done some kind of big, sprawling, um, um, artsy films, but that's not all that um, you know anti-trash has to offer. Um, it also has these very small, intimate uh, human stories, and that's what we're going to do next week with uh, 2014's Force Majeure. I think I have heard of that film. I'm very excited. You probably to have, yeah. yeah. Sounds like lots of fun. Well, dear listener, take a look at that. Take a look at anything and have a conversation, because watching movies is so much more than just 90 minutes and a bucket of popcorn. There's so much more fun to be had, and that fun is found in the conversation. And until then, we'll see you next time. The Good Trash Genre Cast is produced and edited by Arthur Gordon. Direction by Dustin Sells. Social media by Alexandra Bohannon, Caleb Masters, and Dalton Stewart. Our intro and outro is Night Call by Kavinsky and Lovebox. We are also proud to feature music from Deer Tick this week on the program. For more information on this episode of the Good Trash Genre Cast, as well as the rest of the Good Trash Media family, please visit goodtrashmedia.com.